Well, my name is Gary Albright, and I'm the preaching minister here at Shiloh Road. And I want to say thank you for stopping in and checking out one of our sermons. It's my hope that this message will inspire you and help you to follow Jesus more closely during such a difficult time in our country's history. Wherever you find yourself, whatever you're going through, my hope is this message and these words will be a blessing to your life. So I want to begin with a reading from the book of Luke in chapter 5. It is about a man who was paralyzed. It says, One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. They could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who, forgive, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So this story that Luke tells is probably my favorite story in all of the Gospels. And I love Luke's telling of this story because of the details that he includes, because it makes it so vivid and so easy to picture yourself there. Because what happens is there's these four friends. I know it doesn't say four, but there's this mat and there's four corners. So, of course, there's four people. They're carrying their friend on a mat. Because they've heard rumors about this rabbi from Nazareth who is healing people and is preaching this message of hope. And it's got everyone curious. And, and all these people have come from all over the surrounding areas to hear Jesus. And these four friends decide, hey, we know where he's going to be today, so we're going to take our friend and we're going to get him before Jesus. And so they pick their friend up on a mat. They start walking towards the place where Jesus is going to be. But as they come close, they start to hear this roar of a crowd because there's a lot of people. And as they approach the house, they realize that people are pouring out of the house and there's not a place to even get close to the house because the crowd is so large. They're all there to hear this rabbi that they were convinced could possibly help their friend. And so they get to the, the house and they see it, the crowd flowing out into the street. And you know at that moment they sunk their head. And they were disappointed. Because they had worked to get their friend to Jesus and now they weren't going to be able to. 
It's like that feeling on a Sunday afternoon when you leave church and you're going to Olive Garden and you have plans in your mind for the tour of Italy and you arrive, but everyone's beat you to the restaurant early and the crowds are flowing out and you pull up to the front of the restaurant and you say, oh man, and you know that you're not going to stay. You're going to go to another restaurant and find another place to eat. And so the friends, they see the crowds pouring out, and you know there's a frustration. But then they look at their friend. There, there's always that one friend in the group. The friend who is really quiet, and you can tell there's something going on in his head. And after a few moments of silence, all you hear is, Dude, the roof. And he gets this huge smile on his face, and the other friends start looking and saying, there's no way. And he goes, no, 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 no. We're going to take him up on the roof. And the other friends ask, well, what are we going to do? Are we just going to rip a hole in the roof and throw him down? Well, he's paralyzed. Why not? So they, they decide that they're going to try this. And so you know they hop up on the back of a camel and onto the fence and then onto the rooftop and they get this friend up onto the roof and then they start ripping a hole in the roof. And I can just imagine the homeowner at this point just like, ah, oh, we don't have insurance, what's going to happen? And then comes this moment that they lower their friend down through the hole in the roof that they've made and they place him right before Jesus. And I, I love the story. I, I love the creativity and the way that they're thinking. We've got to get our friend to Jesus. Wouldn't it be amazing if as a church, as individuals, if that was our heartbeat, that we will do whatever it takes to get people who are far from Jesus in front of him. We will do whatever it takes by any means necessary. If we have to stop meeting together for a time and do everything on video, we're going to do whatever we can do to get people who are far from Jesus to Jesus because we believe he has the power to heal and the power to save. But what I love most about these men is their motives. Their, their motives and what they're doing. Because if you'll notice in the story, they don't get any attention. In fact, as Luke talks about them, he says, some men. And if you go back to the original Greek, it was just one simple word, men. Men carried this friend to get him before Jesus. No names. I mean, you would think it would be Larry and, and Lenny and Kenny and Ben. They took their friend to Jesus. But none of that. Which brings to mind something is really important here for all of us. Your motives matter. They're, they're not doing this for their name. They're not doing this for recognition. They're not doing this because of themselves. They are doing it. Because they believe there is something truly special about this man that they call Jesus. And all of the Pharisees and teachers have come to hear because there's something different here. But these men, 
These men believe that Jesus has the power to heal. So much so that they're willing to go to extraordinary lengths to get their friend to Jesus. And I think we learned something really, really powerful here. If you will commit to the what, and you are consumed by the why, then you will figure out the how. If, if you are shirt certain about the what, and you are consumed about your why, you will figure out the how. There's a huge crowd. I don't know how we're going to get them, our friend, to Jesus. But we believe he has the power to do something to bring healing to him. So we're going to figure out how we do it. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had that heart as the people of God to get people to Jesus? And I wonder right now from your perspective, who are the people that God has placed around you that need Jesus? Maybe right now in this moment more than they ever have before and they're starting to realize it. What an incredible opportunity to share the love of Christ. There's another perspective in this story that I think is really interesting as well. There's the crowd. And who is the crowd? The crowd is the Pharisees and it's the teachers of the law. And they've come from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the Galilee just to hear Jesus because they hear there's this new rabbi who's doing miraculous signs and wonders. And they also hear that he's teaching a message that's a little bit different than what they've been teaching. And he's claiming that, that God has anointed him and given him power and strength. And so they're coming with this heart to investigate what Jesus is doing. They're curious they're not certain who this Jesus is. But what's interesting is they end up being in the way. Because these men approach the house with their friend on a mat, and it says they couldn't find a way in because of the crowd. There, there were so many people, so many of them investigating, so many of them checking things out, that they couldn't find a way to get their friend to Jesus. And these men, these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they saw themselves as the protectors of the faith. Because if someone was going to claim to speak for God or on behalf of God, and it was going to be a different message than what they were proclaiming, then it was going to mean problems. And so he must be stopped. And so they've come to investigate, they've come to check it out. And you need to understand something about their heart. I truly believe this. They love God with all of their heart. They know the scriptures. They, they love and want to worship and, and extol God with everything they have. But their focus had lost its center. Their, their focus had kind of gone in a different direction because they had been so, become so consumed with their system. And I think their motives become so clear when Jesus says these words. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And you almost hear, if you're in the room with the men, you almost hear the silence and the hush come over the crowd as they start to 
to think these things, it says in their heart, but I, I would imagine there are some whispers in the room as well. Wait, what, what, what did he just say? Did he say your sins are... Because in their mind, the only one who can forgive sins is God. Well, God and the priests, assuming you follow the right sacrificial system. So right after Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven, says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? See, in their mind, it's not Jesus claiming to be God. Although Luke will make that claim, and I think this story makes the claim a little bit later. The point here is Jesus is is speaking on behalf of God. That's their problem. That's the problem for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that Jesus is speaking on behalf of God. That's God's position to forgive sins. That's only something God can do. And they're thinking this and speaking, and Jesus is speaking on behalf of God. Who can forgive sins? It's God, and then it's the priests. And Jesus, wanting to really draw them out, says, just so you know the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is this messianic claim. It's from chapter 7 of Daniel that um, Xander just read for us. And it's this claim that, that at some point when the Son of Man comes, everything on earth is going to be under his dominion and power and control. Everything. And I'm sure this infuriates the Pharisees and the teachers of the law even more. That he's not just claiming now to speak on behalf of God. Now he's claiming that he will be the Messiah. He's the chosen one of God who's come to save Israel. But what I think we see in this story is something that's so important. For the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their system had become their savior. The priests had these roles that they played to forgive people's sins. And it was their job, as long as they went through the system in the correct order and the correct steps, then they could pronounce them forgiven. But for these teachers and Pharisees, these leaders, their system had become their savior. It was a system that was designed to draw people closer to God, to to really pull them in and increase their relationship with God. But instead of seeing God as their Savior in a system that pushed them into a relationship with God, they began to see the system as their God. It was something that they worshipped. It was something that they had to protect. It wasn't protecting God that they were concerned with. It was protecting the system. And, and what I want you to understand is their system that was designed to draw them closer to God actually became their God. It, it was very much a transactional process. If you do this and this and you say this or you offer this, then you will be forgiven. Understand this. When grace becomes transactional, it is no longer grace. Grace is given. It is free. 
And so all of the things that we do within that system are designed for us to show our worship, our appreciation, our love to God. It's not to earn God's love. And and the danger is we can do the exact same thing in our life today, especially as a church. We, We can make everything all about the name that is on our building. We can make it about our attendance and showing up for church. We can make it about baptism. We can make it about communion or even serving. And those things that were supposed to be signs pointing us to Jesus, drawing us closer to Jesus, in fact become the Savior that we worship. Listen, those things do not save you. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection conquering the grave, that is what saves us. Everything else that's a part of our system is designed to pull you, to draw you, to push you closer into relationship with God. The baptism that we got to witness a few moments ago was never supposed to be the Savior. It was just supposed to be a sign pointing to the Savior. And that's why Paul says that it's we're buried with Christ in baptism. And just the same way that Christ was buried in the grave, we too are buried into that grave and we're dead And our sins are gone, they're washed away, and we're raised out of that water as a new person into this new life and this new world has begun. It was a sign, it was a symbol pointing us to the Savior. And so we have to be really careful because it's possible that we create walls, that the crowd can make it difficult for people to get to Jesus and miss the point of his grace being free to all and the invitation to simply come as you are to Christ. They were all intended to draw you closer to the Savior, not to take his place. And I think what we've seen in this moment in time for us as a church and as a world is crisis creates clarity. As crisis comes, we see clarity. And the things that really matter become our focus once again. Isn't it been amazing these last several weeks? I haven't heard of a single church um, splitting, a single church um, fighting. All I've heard is churches coming closer together, centered around Jesus, worshiping him, and trying to figure out how to live life on mission. And I think it's because crisis creates clarity. It brings us back into focus of what is so important and what matters most. So, from your perspective, from my perspective, as we look around, are there people who are trying to get to Jesus who may be struggling because of the walls that we have created? And Jesus' invitation is simply come come to me. So there's one more perspective in the story that I want to look at, and it's the man who's lying on the mat. His friends see the need, and it's quite obvious. He can't walk. He can't move. And the need is easy. Fixing it, finding a solution, 
helping him. That's a different story. But they're committed. They're committed to finding a way to get him before Jesus. And I wonder what it would have been like to be lying on the mat, being carried to the house with hope of what was going to happen right before you. And then finding that the crowd was pouring out and keeping him from Jesus. I wonder what it would have been like to be there. And then to find themselves up on top of a roof being lowered down before all of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and Jesus right there in front of him. I, I wonder what it would have been like. Because these friends believed there was something truly special about Jesus. And if, in fact, he was Messiah, the prophecies from Isaiah where it talks about the lame leaping like a deer had to bring such hope. If this was Jesus and if he was Messiah, then what are the possibilities? What could happen? But yet, even with hope there in the future, he was paralyzed and couldn't move. But it's Jesus who sees the man and sees the greater need. It's not just the need to stand and walk, but I think it's the need to be forgiven so that you can stand in the presence of a holy God. Stand as one with God. And it's only Jesus that can truly do that. But the friends didn't understand that. They just saw a miracle worker, a wonder worker, who could do miraculous things. So we've got to get him to Jesus. And I think it's so interesting that in the story, it's the friends that they recognize the need of their friend and want to get him to Jesus. But it's Jesus who sees all of his needs and addresses the greatest need first. But then there's still the problem. This man is paralyzed. He can't walk. And of course, you would assume that his greatest desire in the world would be to be able to walk. It would be able to get up and take his mat and go home. That's why they're there. And I know right now in our world, there are a lot of people who are paralyzed. Who are paralyzed by fear, by anxiety, by depression, by the loss of a job, by marriage, paralyzed with being a parent now and also a teacher, daycare worker. People who are paralyzed by um, high-stress jobs and being worked more now than in the past. Those who work in healthcare systems. Those who work in grocery stores or drive trucks. And maybe right now you feel paralyzed. The senior graduating from high school who's missing out on the fun of their senior year. Missing out on graduation. Or prom. And you feel that anxiety and you feel that depression. Maybe it's your kids' lives. You know, I... I don't think early on I took into account the way this was affecting my children as much as it was affecting us. But this has its, its effect on kids because they're not around their friends and they're struggling just as we all are. 
for college seniors who are graduating and now trying to find jobs in a, an economy that's not hiring. And the, the prospects of having to move back in with your parents instead of trying to set out on your own. For those who are out of work. I mean, in the last month, over 10 million people in our country have had to file for unemployment. And that brings a whole other set of problems. Those who are worried about finances. And they're paralyzed with fear and anxiety of how we're going to pay next month's bills. Those who are paralyzed by a sense of being overworked. And it's, you work and work and work and then you come home and it's just like you want to relax, but you don't want to do anything else either because you're so tired and worn out. There's that feeling of being paralyzed and not being able to move. And with the downturn in economy comes more depression. And what we'll see over the next several months and, and years, I would imagine, is suicide rates that are climbing, marriages that are failing, children that are struggling with more anxiety and depression as it all increases. And right now, it's almost as if we're trying to learn to walk again. Because we, we had that first initial hit where that crisis um, came and it sent us into the state of shock. And over the last several weeks, I know for me personally, it feels like I've kind of gained my footing again. And I figured out how to, to function with this new society. And then what I found last week I thought was so interesting is our country and economy begins to talk about opening back up, I felt more and more anxious. When what I want more than anything is for everything to be back to the way it was. And I started wondering, well, why, why am I anxious about actually opening back up and getting back to normal? And I think the, the reason is because I just figured out how to walk again. And I know that the next step is not just going to be, hey, we snap our fingers, then everyone just comes back to church and everything is back to normal. I know it's going to be stages. And I'm not sure what those stages are going to look like. And for me, that means I'm anxious because I want to know, I want control. And I think that's one of the things crisis does is it makes us realize just how little control we do have over everything that's going on. And I know that there's going to be this next step, this next phase where I'm going to have to learn to walk again. I'm going to have to adjust my schedule and my calendar. And what's working right now is not going to work as I move forward. And my guess is there's going to be several more of those steps along the way. And so I want to spend just a few moments talking about how do we deal with, if you're in that place where you're paralyzed, or one day will be in that place where you're paralyzed by fear and anxiety and depression. And it seems like everything in your, your world is kind of caving down around you. I think some who continually deal with this, but then more so now those who are dealing with because of the circumstances and the situation we find ourselves in. So how do we deal with it in a healthy way? First, acknowledge that you're not okay. And that that is okay. 
acknowledge that I'm not okay, that I'm, I don't feel great. I'm not happy every single day. Every day is not the greatest day in the world right now, and that's okay. Name those feelings, and I would encourage you to write them down. Put a name to that feeling and write it down. I feel happy, I feel sad, I feel scared, I feel anxious, I feel angry. Whatever that emotion is, write it down. Because you cannot control your emotions that you feel. But you can control what you do with them right now. You can control how they affect you and how much say they get in your life. That is something you can control. So write it down. Name it. Second, look at anxiety as a prompt to pray. When I sense anxiety, that is a a prompt to stop what I'm doing and pray. That anxiety is a good, God-given emotion. It's not meant to control us. It's not supposed to tell us what we do. But it is an emotion that God gave us. And I think it is a beautiful reminder that I need to stop and pray. We we change our perspective in regards to anxiety. Peter tells us uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, cast all of your anxiety on him, speaking of Jesus, because he cares for you. And so we sense that anxiety building up. Here's what you do. You stop, you get away from everyone, Spend, spend five minutes off by yourself. Take some deep breaths. And those emotions that we just named, that we just labeled, that we just wrote down, we say, God, right now I am feeling so overwhelmed because I don't know what tomorrow looks like. And I want to control my tomorrow, and I'm realizing that I can't. And so, God, I'm giving you my tomorrow And I'm trusting that you're going to take care of it today. That you have all things in your hands and that you're going to love me through this. You're going to walk with me through this. God, I'm trusting you. I give it. And in fact, one of the things I find is helpful when I pray prayers like that is just to hold your hands up and open your palms. It's this idea of releasing. God, I'm giving it to you, it is yours. Cast all your anxiety on him. Because these crisis moments reveal just how little control we do have. Third, control what you can control. There's a lot of things. And like I said, crisis reminds us of just how little we control. Control the things you can. You cannot control what the government says in the next decision that comes out. You cannot control what other people are doing in your neighborhood, at the stores. You can control you. The the one thing that you do have control over is your posture and your presence. The the way that you face this moment, the way you stand up in in the middle of the storm, and your presence and understanding that your presence is with God and His presence. You can control that. So take care of that. Control the things you can control. Third or fourth, create a rhythm. And I don't mean learn to dance because we're Church of Christ, but I, I mean create a rhythm to your day, right? 
that, that we get up because during when everything was normal, you had a rhythm, you had a routine. You got up at a certain time, you got dressed, you ate breakfast, you had a, a shower, um, you had your coffee, you read your Bible, you went to work. You did. So, so now that there's a new normal, like I said, I'm, I'm learning to walk again, create a new rhythm to your day. So I'm going to get up at this time and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to get dressed and I'm going to go exercise and I'm going to eat breakfast and then I'm going to go and, and get dressed for work and I'm going to sit down and work or if I'm not going to work, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to interact with someone. I'm going to eat lunch at this time. I'm going to eat dinner at this time. I'm going to have a bedtime. I'm not going to sit up and watch Netflix until 2 a.m. letting my emotions go wild. I'm going to create a rhythm to my day. And I promise you, it will help. Because right now, our brains are reading error. I, I listened to a, a, a podcast by Henry Cloud a few weeks back. And he said, this moment is like that moment where you're walking through your living room in the middle of the night and it's pitch black and you can't see anything. But somehow, someone moved your couch right into the middle of the living room. And the path you always walk through, now there is a couch. And so as you're walking through the living room in the dark and you can't see, you run into the couch. And the first thing your mind does is start registering error, 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 error. Things are not as they are supposed to be. And our mind readjusts and it figures out how do we get around this? How do we navigate this? And then it creates a new normal so that we can function. And right now we've run into that couch. Our, our normal has been disrupted, or our brain's been reading error, error, error. And when we create that rhythm, it brings us back into this sense of normalcy. And so create a rhythm to your day. Number five, give yourself grace. When you have a bad day, it is okay. When, when things don't get done just the way that you thought they should, it's okay. Things are not normal now anyway, and no one will know the difference if they are not. So give yourself grace. I found that I am far more um, hard on myself than other people are on me. I expect a lot out of myself. And there are a lot of times where I fail to meet those expectations that I've set for myself. Right now, more than ever, it is so important that you give yourself grace. Because I believe the people around you are giving you more grace than they normally would. I believe God is giving us grace as he always does. The person that you need to convince that you need grace right now is you. It's okay. And as we said, number one, it's okay to not be okay. Acknowledge it. I'm not okay right now. Think, think of it this way. If someone that you knew and loved was going through and experiencing the same emotions that you were experiencing right now, what would you tell them? How would you be kind to them? What would you show them? Please give yourself that same grace. And number six is this. Reach out for help. Please reach out for help. That may be through a friend. It may just be simply calling up someone that you're close to that you walk through life with 
someone in your e-group, one of our shepherds, someone on our staff, and just saying, you know what, I'm not okay right now. I'm really hurting. I'm struggling. Anxiety and depression are starting to, to set in. And, and understand, the depression side is completely normal right now because we've gone through a crisis and things have changed, and part of that change is grieving what is not the way that it should be. As we went through, you know, seniors who are graduating and are not getting, there is grief there. That is okay. People who have lost jobs and are grieving, staying home, or filing for unemployment, that is okay. That is normal. That is part of this process. But please don't think you're in this alone. Reach out for help. Just say to someone who's close to you, hey, I'm not feeling great, and I just need you to know that, and I need you to pray for me. It is perfectly fine. Being a Christian, listen, 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 listen. Being a Christian does not make you exempt from trials. And saying, I am struggling, does not mean you are weak. It simply means that you are human. And Jesus understood that. And that is why he invites you to him. Because it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. It's okay if you're struggling right now and you don't feel right. It's okay. But what you do need to do is reach out for help. See, here's the beauty of Jesus, and, and from his perspective. He doesn't just see a man who needs to be forgiven. He sees a room of people who need to find their way to God. People in so many different places in that room. The people who claim to be the people of God actually keeping people from getting to God and some friends who are so passionate about their friend that they'll do whatever it takes to figure out the how to get him before Jesus. And then you have this man who can't walk and badly wants to be healed. And Jesus loves them all. I believe that. And I believe he would want you to know today that he loves you too. And he has not abandoned you during this time. In fact, He's been through everything you have experienced. And he's experienced it all with beauty and grace and forgiveness. And he offers that to you and I. He offers that invitation to come to him. And so now we move towards a table. And it is a table that brings us together as one. It is a table that unites right now, maybe more than ever before. So come as we prepare to move towards the table.